The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We turn in God's Word to the book of Isaiah as we begin this evening a four-part series in chapters 49 through 53, looking at some of the major portions of this prophecy that makes up part of the book of Isaiah that concerns the coming servant of the Lord, prophetic portraits of the coming of the Messiah. Tonight we begin with Isaiah 49. And reading verses 1 through 16 of this part of God's word, let us hear the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. 
But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is God's word. The Trail of Tears, as it commonly became known throughout the years of 1831 to 1837, was the forcible removal of Native American Indians from their ancestral homelands in southeastern states of the United States, present Georgia, North Carolina, and other states, and their removal west of the Mississippi to what would become Oklahoma, what was called Indian Territory at the time. Over those six or seven years, 46,000 Native Americans were forcibly removed. They did not resist at all. They, were, they knew they could not uh, fight against the forces of the United States. They were forcibly removed, really in contrast to the original vision of George Washington and other founding fathers who had a vision for the civilizing of these tribes and incorporating them in some way into the United States. There were many forces at work that brought this eventually to an act of Congress which appointed this removal, and it's too complex to even begin to talk about all of that now. But what happened was that the Choctaw tribe, the Creeks, Seminoles, Chickasaws, and then finally the Cherokees, all were forced to travel in sometimes very harsh and difficult conditions, sometimes by river, sometimes over land, hundreds of miles through difficult trails to their future home. Of the 15,000 Cherokees who were the last tribe to move, 4,000 died en route, mostly children, women, seniors, who were not able to endure the harsh conditions of this trip. A very sad chapter of American history, and it was only 170 years ago, really not that long ago. Well, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with Isaiah 49? Well, Isaiah 49 addresses a people who have been forcibly removed, who have been taken from their lands, and taken into exile. We refer to it as the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah chapter 49 speaks comfort, encouragement, and exhortation to them. And at the same time, it prophetically predicts and foretells the coming of the Messiah. I'd like to look at a a few points, three main points from our text, as we look at this amazing portrait of Christ. Our first point tonight is this. The only hope for God's people is Jesus Christ. The only hope for God's people is this amazing servant of the Lord who is portrayed here, this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God's people in the Old Testament, and you and I, God's people in the New Testament time, our only hope is Jesus Christ. We see that the context of Isaiah 49, 
is Isaiah, years before even the exile took place, even before the nation of Judah went into exile, here is Isaiah prophesying the exile and then prophesying the return from exile. That's the context of Isaiah 49. The second half of the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 and following, deals a lot with this. And he is prophesying about this return. Isaiah lived before the nation was taken into exile. Uh, Much of the comfort that Isaiah speaks about here is specifically aimed at those people whose lives have been shattered and broken by this removal from their homeland. And yet Isaiah, as he prophesies this, looks further ahead and is speaking about a greater hope in the Messiah. The actual immediate context of Isaiah 49 is the chapters that lead up to it. And if you turn back to chapter 44, the very end of chapter 44, verse 28, you see a remarkable thing. You see Isaiah prophesying a pagan king who's going to be raised up by God, who's going to decree and enable the return. That verse says, who says of Cyrus, God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah, hundreds of years before this takes place, prophesies about this. And then chapter 45, verse 1 and following, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. And then he talks about Cyrus is going to open the gates and the doors that were closed. He's going to break to pieces the doors of bronze. Then down in verse 4, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Speaking of Cyrus, and even though Cyrus was a pagan king who did not know God, verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is saying here that he's going to do this remarkable thing. He's going to call Cyrus as his servant, his anointed. You know, a good Israelite of that day would have been astounded. God is calling a pagan king his shepherd, his anointed And he's going to raise up this king whom he says, Isaiah says, doesn't know God. And he's going to use him. And that's exactly what happened historically. The Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon and then decreed that the Jews were to return to their nation and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. It all unfolded in history. An amazing prophecy. And in verse 6, I read the whole goal of this was to glorify God, that people from the east and west, that all would know that God is on the throne. And so that's chapters 44, 45, and chapters 46 and 47 talk about Babylon being judged by God, the idols of Babylon being under the judgment of God. Babylon will be brought low. 
just think of the Israelites as they read this and heard this in their exile, in a foreign land. That Babylon, their enemy that oppressed them, is going to be brought low. What would the Cherokees have thought if there was a prophecy given to them? Boy, the United States is going to be brought low. And you're going to be restored to your land. That's what the Israelites heard. It reminds me of Psalm 126, which speaks about the psalmist crying out after the restoration. When the Lord brought back the captive to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Their dream came true. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. It was great news for these Israelites, great news beyond expectation that God would restore them. Your enemies will be brought down. Don't we tend to think that, oh, if only God would uh, fix things in the world here. You know, the United States has various enemies. We face terroristic threats and, you know, China's always in the wings and we're not sure economically or with their totalitarian rule what's going to happen there. Don't we just sometimes long, wouldn't it be great if just all the enemies would fall by the wayside somehow? And, and yet we know in this world there are always going to be problems and enemies. And the United States is not God's anointed nation by any means. But we know that everything will not be fine in this life, in this world before the return of Christ because of the sin in our hearts. In fact, some of the most prosperous and peaceful times have been the most deadly spiritually for God's people. Interesting, isn't it? And so we come to Isaiah 48, and now we see why Isaiah 48 makes sense. We ask, well, what will be the result of this glorious restoration? If you read through Isaiah 48, will God's people live happily ever after? Well, we know the answer to that is no. There remains the big, big, big problem of remaining sin. And so Isaiah 48 comes in context that you think, well, things are going to be great, but look at verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from waters or line of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. And the chapter goes on to speak of the nation's sin to speak about the fact that they still do not hear the Lord. Verse 4, Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is as an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. You know, it's kind of like the child who, you know, we all heard the joke, the child who says, uh, who's, uh, you know, who's told to sit down, and he says, you know, he thinks in his mind, well, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You've all heard that joke, I'm sure. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Isaiah prophesying years before, the people of God really do not change. The sins of the people of God of Isaiah's day and before the exile and after the exile, the problem is still there. The old sins live on. It is though their suffering, their exile has taught them nothing. In fact, in chapter 48 verse 10, God says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. In other words, the refining didn't work. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. 
For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Essentially, God is saying there, I am restoring you, but it's not because you've turned away from your sinfulness. I'm doing it for the glory of my name, that all the nations may get a glimpse of who I am. In other words, the restoration will not change their hearts. No, they need a redeemer. They need something better than restoration to Jerusalem, better than restoration to their homeland. They need a restoration spiritually by their redeemer. And so we come in in that context to Isaiah 49, the beginning of the prophecies of Isaiah about this coming servant of the Lord. What a beautiful picture of Christ. And it begins in verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name, and yet we aren't given the name here. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, speaking the word of God like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. It's like the mighty warrior who has a favored arrow, and he polishes it and hones the point of it really well, and it's kept in his quiver, ready for use at the most important time. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here the suffering servant is actually called Israel at this point. He's the Israel par excellent. He is the Israel that should have been the sinless one. And the purpose is revealed to us then in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So part of the purpose of the servant of the Lord who is to come, we see revealed in verse 5, he is going to restore God's people, not just geographically, not just physically, but he's going to restore them fully and spiritually. The point of this prophecy is this. The only hope of God's people is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the ultimate and the true servant of the Lord. We know he grants forgiveness of our sins. We know He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. All these Christmas and Advent hymns and songs to set the captives free. Here it is in Isaiah. Think of the application of this. The true and ultimate and only hope for God's people always is Jesus Christ alone. Any lesser hope will not be sufficient to save us or to sustain us, or to enable us to persevere and to fight the good fight of faith. Think of it. Think of it here in Isaiah. Even the restoration that was prophesied long ago before by the prophets of God, that was ordained by God and carried out, and he raised up a pagan king to bring it about, Something so miraculous and marvelous, even that restoration, Isaiah is saying, 
which was part of the redemptive history of God, was not sufficient. It wasn't sufficient to save the people from themselves, from their own sin. It wasn't sufficient to transform their hearts. It wasn't sufficient to be their ultimate hope or our ultimate hope in any way. And so the application comes to us in this way. Certainly, yes, there is a place in all of our lives for lesser hopes. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you've had the family here for Thanksgiving or you've had some good family times and you're looking forward to Christmas in a few weeks. Maybe some of you grandparents are looking forward to grandchildren and getting together with them. Or maybe you're here tonight thinking about marriage and hoping to be married soon. And that's certainly something good. Not necessary, but good. Or maybe you're thinking about a good job that you may get or maybe restoration to health in some way or material blessing. Maybe some of you young folks are dreaming about the college of your dreams, getting into there, getting a full scholarship of some kind, or maybe you're hoping to get a car or a a new car or maybe even just a used car, or maybe you're uh, looking to get a different house. Maybe you children here, not a lot of you really young folks, but maybe you've got your Christmas list all ready to go. You know, and you're prioritizing it even now. You know, what is on the top of the list? Well, all of those are not necessarily wrong, and certainly many of them right in their place. But my point is this. All good things, even uh, things that are blessed by God, are not the blazing center of the Christian's hope. That is to be reserved for God himself, for Jesus Christ, our Messiah, And Jesus is our great salvation. He is our hope. He is our joy. And so much of our sanctification and growth in faith has to do with returning again and again and day after day to fix and to refix, if there's such a word as refix, our hope on Jesus Christ alone. That's why we delight to hear the old, old story again and again. That's why we delight at Advent time and throughout the year to celebrate with gospel truths that we know through and through, and yet we need to hear them told to us and preached to us and sung to us again and again. And those truths never stop resonating in a believer's heart because that has to be the center of our hope. And so it's good to be reminded of that and to be reminded that if we are elevating a lesser hope, something that's fine in its place, but it's a lesser hope, if we're elevating a lesser hope so that it's eclipsing and dominating and obscuring our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, then that lesser thing, no matter how good it is in and of itself, must be subjected So to the rule of Jesus Christ in our lives. Whether it's a house, a job, a marriage, your health, whatever it is on that list must be repented of and subjected to the reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. Secondly, brief, we see Jesus is also the light of, for the nations, verses 6 7 of our text. He says, God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my 
servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's the point that we've just seen, the restoration of Israel and ultimately save them. But look at the second half of this verse now. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's a wonder here that Isaiah opens chapter 49 not speaking to the remnant, not speaking to the Israelites who are being restored. Look how he begins chapter 49. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. Is that Israelites? No. Or islands, your translation may say. And give attention, you peoples from afar, you nations from afar. Isaiah opens chapter 49 speaking to the Gentile world. And it's almost secondary that he's speaking to Israelites and talking to them as well. That's part of it, but really the predominant theme begins on this worldwide scope of the gospel going out. Strangely, although the sinfulness of God's people is crying out for remedy. And chapter 48 ends with that theme at the very last verse of that, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And he's speaking that in the context of the people of Israel. Strangely, although that's the crying theme, the servant does not address them directly at all. He speaks to the world at large. Oh, coastlands, oh, islands, peoples from afar, Gentiles. The predominant portion of this commission of the servant of the Lord is to take the good news to the nations. Yes, it's to restore God's people, but it goes far beyond that. To make the Lord, Israel's God, known everywhere. Just like Isaiah is prophetically speaking by the Spirit of the Lord and singing joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. That's what Advent is all about. And then down in verse 7, we see it goes even to kings. It says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of Rulers. So here we're looking ahead to Jesus being despised, suffering. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord. You see how this goes beyond restoration. It goes to Jesus Christ being made known in, in the world. Pagan, heathen kings and princes coming to know the true God. And then verses 11 and 12 pick up that theme. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene or or that's actually the area of Aswan. So Isaiah is saying from the north, from the west, from the south. It goes beyond the people returning from the restoration. Now there's this picture of Gentiles from north, south, west, from all over, streaming into the kingdom of God. That's how mighty the servant of the Lord will be. And so this prophetic portrait of Isaiah begins to sound the worldwide note 
which begun in Abraham, in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. And the New Testament fleshes that out. One temptation that is especially powerful, I think, in our day, with our material prosperity, with the level of peace that we have, is the tendency to look in upon ourselves, to be concerned only with ourselves. It almost seems like the more we have and the more we are blessed, the more we just surround ourselves with all of it and focus inwardly. And the gospel, the glory of the gospel, is that it is always pushing us away from being self-centered and ingrown. And it's pushing us to look outward and to take the gospel to the world. And we need to be reminding ourselves and looking outward to others with the hope of Jesus Christ. He is the light for the nations. But finally, from our text, we see that the servant of the Lord is the pattern of pursuing his calling in the face of great opposition. The servant is the pattern of pursuing his calling in the face of great opposition, but trusting in God. We notice this in verse 4. Chapter 49, verse 4. But I said, here's the servant of the Lord speaking in the midst of this description of what he's going to do. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Interesting, isn't it? Here's this picture of great opposition, which brings the servant to the brink of despair. It's really a hint of the Garden of Gethsemane here. O Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Or a foreshadowing of 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That entrusting is what the second half of verse 4 is about, isn't it? The first part of the verse says, it seems that my labor is in vain. It's against such opposition of sinful men. And yet the second half of the verse says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense or my reward is with my God. That's what 1 Peter 2.23 is saying, Jesus suffered and endured and persevered, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the pattern. That's the example of pursuing his calling in the face of opposition, trusting in the Lord. It's as if this coming servant would have to say, this pathway, this life is very hard. It almost looks to me to be vain, to be useless, to to, to not be worth it in this pathway. But, oh my God, I entrust my life, my cause, my recompense, my reward to my God, and I carry on. None of us would ever do that or have ever perfectly done that. But Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, perfectly did that. And because he did, we live in him and we are strengthened to more and more walk in that pathway as well. This prophecy just overflows with images and metaphors that encourage God's people 
to know from God himself that because of God's grace in this servant who would come, because of his endurance, because of his sacrifice, because of his suffering, because he kept entrusting himself to God and didn't give up, because he worked redemption, we can fully and freely and even joyfully entrust our lives to him. Look at verses 9 and 10. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. You know, the bare height is not where you would go to feed the sheep. There's not pasture to speak of there. That's why it's called bare. They shall not hunger, verse 10, or thirst, neither Scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. That's the blessing of God because of the Messiah. Look at verse 14. But Zion said, here's this beautiful image of a mother. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. That's what Israel was saying. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. I saw a young mom walk into the worship service this morning with her newborn baby in one of those little carrying cases. And, you know, Isaiah here speaking, can a, can a mother forget the baby she's just born? And, you know, would that mother just kind of get up after the last hymn and just walk out? and Oh, the baby. I mean, Isaiah is saying in verse 15, even these may forget. Um, a young mom just may forget. There might be circumstances. Around. Now, a young dad, okay, he would forget. We know that. But a mom, well, she's just gone through all this. She's not going to forget. But, but Isaiah and the Lord is saying, uh, even a mother may forget her baby. But, the Lord says, I will never forget you. What rich encouragement for God's people because of their Messiah. God's people would be reading and hearing this prophecy in one of the most broken situations imaginable. Exile. The Cherokees had to make all new homes out there in Oklahoma. It was a difficult thing. Captivity, defeat, suffering. Psalm 137 is this lament about the captivity and says, we wept when we remembered Zion. And so whatever your present suffering might be this week or this day or this month, maybe your suffering is not too bad, but maybe it's pretty intense right now or maybe it's gone on for some time. Look to your Redeemer, the one who did not despair, the one who entrusted himself to him who judges justly. God promised the Israelites restoration, but he promised something much, much better. And that promise is still there for you and for me. Maybe you haven't even come to know Christ. Maybe you need to put your trust in him for the very first time. Turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ. May it be that at this Advent time, Your trust, whether for the first time or whether for the 500th time, reverts to Jesus Christ alone, the only hope of this world. Let us pray. Father, 
Thank you for Jesus, the Messiah who was to come and now has come in the flesh. May our hope, our trust, our faith be fixed on him alone and help us to long for his return when we will finally see him face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.